0: Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Forey Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. This is a three week takeover of the Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. This series is centred on sexual relationships, abolition, sexual violence, power and feminism. These episodes feature Tina Seeker, Alison Phipps and Nikki Godden-Razul. All three episodes are centred on the new feminist framework based on Tina Seeker's book Sex, Consent and Justice, as well as Alison, Tina and Nikki's new collective titled Abolition Feminism for Ending Sexual Violence. This is a trigger warning to let you guys know that this episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people might find difficult to listen to. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Surviving Society Alternative to Woman's Hour. This is a special series where I've been joined by Tina, Alison and Nikki. Um, you will have heard in the introduction um, that this is a Surviving Society takeover for the next couple of weeks where we're going to be talking about abolition, feminism, consent, sex, justice, all the above. To start with, first episode, I'm going to be joined by Tina Sika. Tina, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tina is a reader in science and intersectional justice in the School of Arts and Culture at Newcastle University. She is author of Sex, Consent and Justice, a new feminist framework, and does research in critical science studies, health and the environment, sexuality and justice. Got a new book coming out in 2023. Look, he's just writing books all the time. New book coming out in 2023 with Bloomsbury titled Health Apps, Genetic Diets and Superfoods When Biopolitics Meets Neoliberalism. And Tina is also head of postgraduate research and soon to be EDI director. Are you are you sure? I know.
1: Are I know. you are you, are you, are you- <laughs> It's it's co-director, there's going to be two of us, so we're okay. just like, okay, we'll we'll kind of do it all together. Do it all together. Tina,
0: thank you so much for coming on the show again. And, oh, just to say to the listeners, we're in Newcastle again as well, so this is really exciting. So today, on this first episode of this takeover, we're going to be talking about your book, Sex, Consent and Justice, A New Feminist Framework. When I read the book, I read it in kind of th- three stages, and it did definitely push me in the same way that Alison Phipps' book, Me Not You, um, pushed me. I think because it reading these books about gender politics, consent, sexual harassment, um, sexual violence, like as survivors or as people that have intimate relationships with these matters it is very personal when you read this stuff I think it's a combination of being cathartic but also quite hard to read you're making me think in ways that is imaginative but crucially abolitionist which listeners of the show will know I really really try my best to be a student of but I definitely struggle with it sometimes how did the book come about?
1: Yeah, and it was really about pushing myself as well around uh, abolition. And the first kind of spark for the book was looking at some tensions in between uh, Me Too and Black Lives Matter around abolition, mm-hmm. and um, some some ways in which advocates of Me Too would say that they were supportive of Black Black Lives Matter campaign. But then there would be these tensions when it came around, jails and policing and harsher laws and more, more carcerality. And so I started doing research around that and just the disjuncture between the two and then looking at Tarana Burke and how she was sort of able to reconcile it a little better um, and then doing a lot more research on restorative justice in the Indigenous context in Canada. Uh, where I'm from, and so getting a little bit of inspiration where it's, it had been uh, successful around gender-based violence and intimate partner violence, um, and and then look at the different cases that were out there, just how the media, because I, you know, I've got a media studies background, and just how they'd been covered, um, and it it coalesced from from there. Mm-hmm.
0: In our pre-chat, I was saying that in the book, you give kind of case study examples of basically famous people that have been accused of sexual harassment, sexual violence, or have been part of wider critiques during the Me Too movement as well. And I think that one of the things that really stood out for me in reading these case studies is even though they're kind of, a lot of them are kind of like celebrities, they're very detached from us as everyday non-celebrities it still feels very personal and quite a good way to help to to bring about more wider understanding of these matters like I'm very like you said your media background like I try and engage I'll be a student of cultural studies like I do think a lot of these example a lot of the examples you give can help to kind of bring people along with us Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah that that's the reason why I kind of put them together and Mm -hmm. I tried to get a a sample so that you know people with different interests might be able to, um, to find re- find resonance with one over the other. So, yeah, having Aziz Ansari, that's one that you know it's a it's a gray area case that I think is is particularly well known. Mm-hmm. And then Louis C.K., which is another kind of gray area case. And then I do talk talk a little bit about Cosby, but then um, Weinstein, of course. Mm-hmm and uh tried to do uh Giangomashi from, from Canada and then Avatar Ronell, who's who's like a woman and in the higher ed mm-hmm. uh and so trying to, to get a little bit of a representative sample but but by no means are these cases that really attend to or reflect the majority of of Me Too cases mm-hmm. that, that have gone on.
0: You mentioned before That one of the things that you were inspired by was sort of Indigenous responses, particularly in Canada, to restorative justice for gender based violence. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about how you cover that in the book?
1: Yeah. um, Within the context of restorative justice um, and transformational justice as well, in a way, there is this sense that we have cases in Canada going on where justice has been uh, handled very differently in different communities. And this is also the case in the Indigenous communities in New Zealand and Australia, and they've built robust sort of internal mechanisms for dealing with violence and and conflict within communities that are not about sort of throwing the person away. And, and I think that attending to harm uh, through mechanisms of sort of sitting down and and discussing where it came from and and the catharsis that comes from that, particularly when it it comes to gender-based violence, that I think that there's a lot to offer from those communities. And I also um, had my own kind of window into the way some of it happens. Uh, My sister is an Indigenous rights lawyer and so she had a lot of information as well on um, cases in which things oh, had gone wrong well. addition indigenous human rights lawyer, yeah. Did you just say yeah. god you have that like power sisters that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> we wrote a chapbook chapter together just oh. a little while ago um, looking at a case which was very strange but uh, one of the things that
0: is clearly amazing about the book is your framework for addressing these issues. And I think that it would be really good to, if you could give an explanation of what you mean by pleasure and care-centred ethics of embodiment and relational sexual otherness.
1: Yeah, and so I did in, in that definition. I tried to critique existing models of sexual ethics and mm-hmm. consent and to articulate an alternative sort of based on all the reading I've done and kind of the research and everything. And it has a number of principles that I go through. And then I, I sort of look at the cases and then show where things have fallen through the cracks and not. But but some of the, the tenets that I think might be interesting for, for people to know about um, is a focus on mutual pleasure and care for the self and other as well. It really focuses on the need to leave room for transactional sex, so sex work and everyday sex as well. It would have to have an ethic of communication uh, as important, also orientation to the other. So it has to be capacious enough to think of of the other as someone who has autonomy and that you have to respect. I think there there are all of these tenets that go into that model that you know it is focusing on sex as an embodied practice as well so it's not just sort of a rational thing that you're like yes or no and is more complicated than we think and so I put all of those principles into this definition and sort of say okay can we try to reconstruct sexual ethics in a in a different way um and and that moves beyond consent specifically because there's a lot of Um, problems with the consent model and so I sort of argue that it is the consent model that needs to be deconstructed. I think that's
0: your definition the reason why I sort of came in straight with trying trying to get you to explore that is because it really spoke to me and in particular um, sorry listeners we are talking about the birds and the bees we're talking about sex right now as in the act of having sex Mm -hmm. with another person um, or other people and what you just said then, like, it removes the transactional nature and makes it an embodied and collective process. That's what I feel like your definition or what you were trying to do in the book really works towards. And particularly when you are giving examples of these grey areas, quote-unquote grey areas of, of um, consent, if the, que- if, if the communication during the sex is focused on are not, is this okay but do you enjoy this yeah. that's what kind of is that was that yeah. your intention yeah. that's what came across to me and i thought that was like oh that's so that's so it, it it's instructive but also it's it does feel like a way to reconcile with some of these tensions yeah, basically yeah it's, it's
1: it's introducing that idea that it is an embodied practice but but one that has to leave room for transactional sex mm-hmm. so um you know, for like getting pregnant, for example, you know, that is transactional in, in a way, but it's it's more functional. Um, and I think that I've, I've used a lot of scholarship that's come out of feminist new materialism for that area because it it's very helpful in in language and just in, in pr- approach to try to reconcile the sort of mind body binary that I think is an, at the root of a lot of the problems around consent. Mm-hmm. Because it made me think, just for the listeners, could you introduce
0: the Aziz case study? And then I want to sort of talk a little bit about how you evaluate that yeah.
1: um, in the book. If that's yeah, okay. yeah. So, so Aziz sorry, you know, I think most people know comedian, American. comedian, actor. Yeah.
0: What's his show called
1: again? Master of None. Yeah, Master of yeah. None. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and very progressive, you know, great on women's issues. When on... this stuff happened, my um, my stepdaughters were so
0: good because they love Master of None. They're mm-hmm. like mixed South Asian women and they were like, it's like, just like one of their, was yeah. one of their like- Parks
1: and Rec. Parks and a, Rec as well. Yeah, like yeah.
0: they like loved it. And I remember being like, Aziz, not Aziz. Yeah,
1: and, and so there was a, an article that was written about him um, by a woman who was uh, anonymous um, at an outlet called Babe.net. And there were a bunch of journalistic ethics problems with the article as well, but it basically recounted um her, her I think her name, yeah, Grace, her her date with uh Aziz Ansari, in which they went out to eat, went back to his apartment, and then it was just an entire sort of evening of being pressured to have sex, of yeah, that that sort of negging, of mm-hmm. you know, that it was sort of a very uncomfortable experience for her. Um, and so this piece came out, and there was uh, a very polarized reaction, where people were either that, you know, why didn't you just get up and leave? Like, you know, this is this this account of her as a victim was. Um, challenging women's autonomy and think, you know, that they were being presented as unable to make decisions. And so it was actually anti-feminist. And then people on the other side were like, no, there are certain gendered norms that were built into that interaction. There are power dynamics, Um, celebrity played a factor, that his behavior was just wrong, that it was tantamount to uh, sexual assault. And then some people sort of in between. When she left, she sent a text saying that, you know, I was really uncomfortable. And he said, you know, I'm sorry I made you feel this way. And then it, you know, sort of spiraled out. Um, and he sort of did a, a like, you know, like maybe a six out of ten apology. Mm. Um and about four, to be yeah, honest. Yeah. It was very like center of the self, yeah. liberal. Yeah, yeah. like how it affected him and how he yeah. was scared he couldn't, you know, do any comedy again. Um, and so in the book, I, I sort of go through that case, and I analyze the event, the evening itself, in line with um, the the model that I put forward, and then I consider whether um, a restorative approach might have been better. And it, it's not to say that it, it could have been used in this context of celebrity, but it's that sort of idea that if you had a case like this, and, um, you know, Grace and is is really unhappy with how it turned out, would it be possible if there were a framework through which, um, you know, complaints and, and and just harms could be discussed and addressed, and he seems to be someone who might be willing to be part of such kind of processes, that that is a much better approach to dealing with these sort of gray area cases than doing the sort of media back and forth or going through any kind of a carceral system. And this case, as well as, I think, as you say,
0: giving a really good example of your framework, like what, what could have happened, like in the critiques where people were saying, oh, why didn't she just get a cab home and stuff? That, that That's kind of engaging with what you talk about in the book as the liberal consent model. And I think that that is something which I myself have experienced. I know lots of other women have experienced that tension of liberal consent and that being that it's a yes or no answer yeah. and not considering the power dynamics involved. But your sort of framework, what I got from it is that Grace, the the um, with the protected identity that Aziz um, shared this evening with, she didn't say no, but she, your framework would say that it's something like I'm not enjoying this. Can we do this? Yes. Is that is that that's is that, yeah. is that correct? It, it's or... that
1: that respect for the other and paying yeah. attention to bodily cues and that that the idea that men are unable to pick up on these subtle cues is actually not bullshit. That's that's not yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's 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 not tr- you know mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. That, that that there has to be this cultivation of respect for for the other, mm-hmm. um, and I sort of have a background in like Levinas and Derrida. So a lot of that comes from from there. Um, and I think that that needs to be sort of built into the model as well, that, um, that 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 respect, like you just don't do that to another person, no matter what. That has to be something that is a, a cultural kind of mm-hmm. a thing, yeah, a structural problem.
0: Definitely. I just want to read something from the book around these issues of consent. You say, there is a distinction between factual consent reflecting one state of mind, its expression as a social fact, and legal consent, which refers to the rules which define situations in which a person is legally deemed to have consent cultures, alternatives, and a new approach, consented whether or not this is factually the case. That sentence really spoke to me because I think it gets to the heart of these issues mm-hmm. and it really shows like how difficult these things are. But also the need for the new framework, because we don't have we don't have the language or sexual literacies to actually grapple yeah. with these issues, and I think that that's where the book is so powerful
1: yeah, it comes that you know we're talking in a context where you know in the states there's you know a attack on Roe and and um right, on, able to, uh, just yes, to be clear yeah. to the listeners, can you yes, say what Roe yes. is um the, the case that makes it possible for, for you know, people who are having kids or not having kids to make that decision and to get an abortion if they so choose, uh, which has been, you know, under attack for a long time. But now there's a very real case that it will not exist in a little while. And, um, and, and there's this sense of, you know, how do you cultivate an environment in which this kind of sexual ethics can take hold when basic rights to sexual autonomy to reproductive justice to sex education in schools is is not being addressed either Uh, and so it makes things feel really intractable (laughs) Um, yeah it's crazy because i can't believe
0: how recently me too was and how quickly so many things have been are being um unraveled yeah. and it really reminds me I mean you can't understand you can't not think about these things together but we talk about on this show like the white lash the white lash being um the rejection to our sort of post um black lives matter yeah. po- political mm-hmm. moment and that being those things being rolled back and I do think like these things are um interconnected, but the very similar in the structural state media kind of backtracking. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And 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 it's so insidious. And I, I just find it really, you know, difficult. I remember once I had a student when I was a PhD student in one of my classes, um, and it was a class on like surveillance and technology and sort of, you know, within the city and I got a paper back where she used like you know very critical um you know approach approaches where it was a critique of surveillance but she basically wrote a paper saying we need cameras in cities because of all of the immigrants and then i was like like well, can you not like <laughs> um you know see that that you know i'm a, like a racialized person like it just seemed like she didn't really consider me as a someone who is racialized and and it was because of this sort of model minority perspective as well. So it it you know it becomes like when it's either like race or sexual ethics or anything else, it's like how do you go back to, to make even the most insidious assumptions and how do you challenge them and what if the law is telling you you can't even challenge them because, you know, you can't teach critical race theory, you can't teach about mm-hmm. sex, or you can't teach about uh, people who are trans in mm-hmm. in schools? And so that creates a huge barrier in any movement forward. And I failed her. But well, it was like, because yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the paper yeah. wasn't very good. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> definitely. And
0: it just, it it's really, it is quite frightening, isn't it, to see, like, even... I think it was two and a half years ago I interviewed Alison about about her new book and uh, Me Not You and I can't even believe in that time how much things have changed um, and even at that time when we were having the conversation about political whiteness about white feminism and the issues around Me Too it did feel like I don't know. I'm very. I can be very utopian about these things, and sometimes I can forget how shit things are at the time. When more time passes, but it did feel like space was opening some space, or the, was opening there was for conversation, dialogue, some kinds of reconciliation, or thinking about Stuart Hall. Like there was some gaps in the terrain. Like there was some bits of hope, and I do feel like a lot of that has been pretty slash, particularly when it comes to gender politics and thinking about like sexual violence. Yeah. Um, there are these cracks and disjunctures that were there and they just now have closed up. <laughs> really. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I guess one of the things we were saying, again, relating it to um, race and racism as well, like one of the things we were saying on the show the other day is that seven years ago, yeah, Steve Bannon saying, oh, wear your racist badge of honour. And it's like now we're getting to the point where the turfs wear their badge of honour. Yeah. The the people that want to or feel that they have a right to control people that um, bear children's bodies, yeah. yeah, being like, of course, I'm going to control that. It all feels very. I and I really I don't want. It. Some people will think I'm about to say like dystopian. It really annoys me when people talk about these things being dystopian. It's like no, these things have always existed, but some yeah. but they become yeah. more pronounced mm-hmm. and more state sponsored. But it does feel pretty bleak.
1: Yeah, it does. It does, and the, and the trajectory of of uh, elections that are happening mm-hmm. everywhere as well. There's there's not like a turn to progressivism mm-hmm. uh, in the way that we might have hoped it would it would happen. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look particularly positive. And and I think that having work and texts and like podcasts and and trying to create spaces where we can have conversations and per- perhaps you know make inroads um i think there's a like a bit of ba- of a battle as it relates to on um, digital spaces as well so trying to um find a space where where we can really engage with this this content and do activism and and uh you know work in the collective as well when we're thinking about abolition so i think that all of that is is really important
0: Something that I wanted to get you to just talk about a little bit just before we
1: finish is Queer and Consent. Yeah. When I was writing, I found a lot of research by scholars who identified as queer and were doing work around sex and sexuality had some really fantastic ways to think about sexual ethics. And so it is about, you know, it it is both a... A sort of strategic move and a methodology uh, where you're taking normative structures like sex and sexual ethics, and then you are seeking to sort of deconstruct and undermine them and push them in different uh, directions. And I think the queer community in particular, as it relates to consent and thinking about non-normative sex, has done a good job of Trying to challenge um structures that we take for granted and just that hegemony around sex that it has to occur this way that this is sort of the 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 power dynamics that we see that it's very sort of heterosexual, it's very cis, it's very male, it's very mm-hmm. heteronormative um and and uh queer scholars have done work for a long time, just you know putting together. Uh, a different way to think about sex and so it is about queering it is that action of of really challenging the structures that are there and thinking of them in and across and in different ways
0: and just on that uh, what sort of feedback have you had on your use of sort of yeah queer and consent but also your framework as well so when people have engaged hopefully in good faith yeah. with the with your work so far what is it What's the feedback been like
1: um i think that around consent in the framework it's been largely positive um in terms of in principle this all looks good mm-hmm. how could we and and the 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 queries come around how can this be operationalized how can we you know Make sure that it is. Um, even if we could create an educational program around it, would it be accepted in schools? All of that. I think um, even around restorative justice, that's where most of the <coughs> yeah, yeah, criticism yeah. comes in, because it it always gets to that limit case of like, what about the murderer? And oh, yeah. and and so so um, yeah, that becomes much more difficult. But so far, I, I think the you know the, the reaction has been really positive and so I'm happy about that.
0: I just keep finding, like, I kept finding myself when I was reading the book um, thinking about probably, yeah, in a heteronormative way, being with a sexual partner about to engage in sex and thinking about, right, what are the things that I need to think about and say or encourage the partner or partners to say in order to make sure that consent is... Is occurring, and what was what's really interesting about that is it is something that isn't we're not taught to do mm-hmm. in that way, and it is it does feel like okay, it's like a a, a very a new way of thinking about engaging in sex. So I'm, I was just interested if anyone had sort of spoken about it in those terms.
1: Yeah, no, no, not specifically. <clears throat> Although it was, and it's always the counterfactual. So they will go back and think about previous experiences and sort of say, like, how could that have played out differently. Um, and and so I will have a little bit um you know of, of thoughts about about that and so those have been helpful yeah yeah
0: definitely and you're right like I mean I I what you said about the restorative justice I every time we interview or I've interviewed an uh, abolitionists on the show I do kind of I don't I don't do it from a devil's advocate point of view I do it from a place of um critical friendship and love and solidarity but in practice thinking about what does that look like? Like if someone, if someone rapes me, what is the, what what does justice look like for me as a victim? But also what does justice look like for potential other victims and survivors? And how do I show people or demonstrate that what is best for society as a whole is that it's not rule or punitive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is the difficult um, aspect is that you really have to think about it, not in terms of individual cases, but as larger yes. structures because the yes. the idea is that, you know, it, that these would prevent a lot of like what are the the factors and the systems that are going into the crimes that occur, so you have to sort of take a step out, but you also have to consider the individual cases and the 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 hurt that is there and mm-hmm. and how how that works in practice, and so what I've learned from you know looking at the way indigenous communities have done this is that um it is those cases that have actually been. Um, dealt with within communities and there seems to be much higher rates of satisfaction and not having a lot of recidivism
0: and also I guess sort of in the abolitionist tradition I I think we're going to talk about this um, on another episode as well it's like thinking about the scaling up as well so like all these things have to correlate with other structures in society like it has to relate to abolishing the police it has to relate to abolishing social services it has to relate to a redistribution of resources like all these making sure that people are understanding that when the act of violence happens that it is related to all these other things
1: and i i would pick up on 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 the social services because you know when it comes to like child protective services and stuff and and the removal of children and the way that that is racialized and very violent and it's sort of state-sponsored, um, that, that that is a, a very big problem, yeah. Tina, that was so good.
0: I, I, love these. <laughs> I do love these episodes because they do really, really push me. George is not here. George always has to come with me on these episodes and listen to sort of like the... It is it's so hard because it's so, it's so deeply personal. It's so deeply political. But... I do, it does energise me reading things like this and talking to people like yourselves, Tina, because it does make me think that another way is possible.
1: Yeah, that's am so glad.
0: <laughs> Tina, thank you so much. And we will see you again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.